uh, 12 through 16 this morning in, in, in the book of Acts. And um, one of the things that I, I, I want to bring up today, as soon as uh, we get that brought up, there's a couple passages of Scripture that I think are going to be really important for us as, as we go forward. They are passages of text that I think will, will help guide us and lead us. And uh, so there's our title slide. We're going to just move right along to our next slide. These are texts that I think that, that, that have really impacted me. And if you've been in any of our um, church membership classes or what have you, you have heard these verses. And even if you haven't been in those, those classes, you've probably heard me talk about these two verses because I, they are so important. And the first one comes in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he says, and he's, and he's praying for the disciples and he's praying not only for the 12, well, in this case, at this point, the 11, but he's also praying for those who come to faith through their words, which, by the way, would be you and me. All right. So um, he says, I do not ask for these only, that is the 11, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And here's this idea that I pray that your people would be one. And look at the so that it's in red and bold and big so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That is that the unity of God's people would actually end up being a testimony to the world that God, that the father has sent the son. That's an amazing passage of text. And then in John 13, 35, is this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How will all people, all people, know that we're disciples of Christ, and that is if we love one another? Well, with these two passages of text as our background, we understand that the, the unity, the church's unity and love for one another produces a powerful testimony to the unbelieving world about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That being the case, we should not be surprised then that this testimony is persistently under attack. And Charlie brought this up a little bit last week, and I want us to understand where we're going to be going in the book of Acts and some of the, uh, an, an underlying thread that um, we're going to see over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And that is, there is a persistent, there is a constant attack against the church's ability to love one another and to be united. It's always under attack. It's always threatened. A couple places we will uh, we will see it. We will see that. Um, let me just give you a, a brief outline. I won't go all the way through the book of Acts, but just maybe over the next few chapters, we're going to see um, this persecution and this attempt to disunite the people of God. First of all, we saw a few weeks ago that Peter and John were arrested and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. This was to bring fear and to bring disunity and to bring. Um, and we're actually going to see that perhaps some people were a little bit of afraid of associating themselves with the apostles. Then we saw last week, Charlie talked a lot of, Charlie talked about how Ananias and Sapphira, this was the first attack against church unity. All right. It was an attempt to uh, exalt selfishness and an attempt to uh, uh, that hypocrisy would be kind of the DNA of the church and not love for one another. 
When we get into the text next week, we're going to see not only are Peter and John arrested, but we're going to see all of the apostles arrested and thrown into prison. Then we're going to see another thing of disunity, and that is where we have the Hellenistic church and the, Jew, and the Jew, Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, the Hellenistic uh, widows and the Jewish widows. Um, there's a bit of a conflict between these two. This, I think, was one of the biggest threats to the church because th- many people's solution would be, well, let's just have two churches. That was not the apostles' idea. We're not having two churches. We're going to have one church. We're going to come up with a solution. But this was a threat. And then we're going to see Stephen murdered. So you can see, we've been talking about how I've, I've entitled this series as the triumph of the gospel. The gospel goes out, but it doesn't go out unhindered. It doesn't go out without any obstacles in its way. There are arrests. There are internal threats. There are external threats. All of this to thwart the going out, the sending forth, and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We've called this the triumph of the gospel and because what we're going to see is that the gospel goes out first into Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world, and nothing hinders it. It is not hindered by language barriers. We saw that on the day of Pentecost. Many languages were spoken. It is unhindered by imprisonment. Put the apostles in jail. Doesn't stop it. It is unhindered by selfish hypocrisy. God deals with that. There are threats from within. There are threats from without. And the gospel continues to go forth and uh, bring the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ wherever it goes. So that's uh, a little bit of a background uh, of where we've been. Let me tell you or provide for you a little bit of direction of where I hope to go today. We have a very short passage of text, but I think there is some, some wonderful truths that we can uncover from this passage of text. We're going to continue to see the progress of the good news as it achieves God's intended results. The continued progress of the good news. Remember, gospel just means good news. We're going to see that good news continue to, be, to go out. It's continued to be spread. It continues to be proclaimed. And it achieves God's intended results. Just like Isaiah said, my word goes forth. And it does what it's supposed to do. Just as water comes down on the ground and it waters the earth and fruit and, and grass springs up and flowers spring up because that's the intended result. So my word goes forth and it brings about its intended results. That is um, the salvation that, that accompanies the proclamation of God's good news. Well, a couple things we're going to see today, and I probably break this down into three main points. All good Baptist, pre- all good Baptist sermons should have three points, and I got three points. I'm not sure if it's a good Baptist sermon, but it's got three points. I'm not sure it's good, and I'm not sure it's Baptist, but it's got three points. Three things I want to look at is the place of signs and wonders in conversion. I think this is going to be important. The place of signs and wonders in conversion. I also hope to untangle a very challenging passage of text. We'll read this. You'll probably see it as as we go through it. But I, I hope to untangle this rather difficult passage. And in so doing... Not just to untangle it and say, aha, now we, we've got it, it makes sense to us, but to draw some application to show um, the, the meaning and the purpose and how it will, can encourage us also in our walk with the Lord. And then um, I hope to highlight 
the idea of union with Christ because we're going to see this, uh, this very full truth of being united with Christ and the benefits and the blessings that come with being joined to Christ. So that's, uh, that's the direction I'm going to go. Let's go ahead and look at our text in, in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Listen to God's word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's inerrant word. You can probably tell just by reading this passage of text that there is a great emphasis on signs and wonders, on healings, on casting out demons, even to the point that people said that people were hoping that Peter's shadow, they would bring sick people, and maybe Peter's shadow would come across that and heal them. And um, perhaps you might say this is a little bit superstitious. They did believe that the shadow of a person was an extension of the person. So we do see some ancient writings um, where the shadow had some sort of benefit to the person. I don't even know if that actually happened. The, the, the bottom line is people recognized that the apostles had some sort of that some sort of supernatural ability was flowing through the hands of, the, of these believers in Jesus Christ to the point that they're saying, listen, we need to get over wherever they are, we need to be. A very interesting passage of text, just one chapter over, in chapter 4, verse 29, I didn't actually uh, preach on this, I think Thomas pro- taught on this uh, particular passage of text, but I think there's a very interesting prayer in chapter 4, verse 29, and it goes like this, And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so the the disciples, the apostles are praying, Lord, give us the ability to continue to speak boldly and we pray also that signs and wonders would take place. In other words, the apostles are praying. They, they seem to have this understanding that there is a connection between the preaching of the gospel, signs and wonders, and people coming to faith. And they pray. We see this connection. And we are praying, Lord, we want to continue to proclaim boldly the word of God. We pray, and we're also praying, Lord, that you would do miraculous things, that supernatural things would occur, that people would be healed, and these things would take place. There seems to be this connection that the apostles understand between miracles and conversion. And we've seen that, right? Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 2, what ha- what's the very first thing that happens on the day of Pentecost? There is this the ability to speak in unknown languages and to proclaim the gospel in unknown languages. And Peter uses this opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel and the result is 3,000 people being saved. There is a supernatural event. There is the proclamation of the gospel. There is the saving of 3,000 people. Then we see the healing of a lame man. And what happens? Peter proclaims the gospel. 5,000 people are saved. And this just keeps going. In, in, 
it doesn't really seem to let up. In chapter 9, verses um, 34 and 35, we, we read this. But Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make up your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. They saw the miracle, and they turned to the Lord. And then in, cha- in chapter 9, verses 40 and 42, it says this, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints, the widows, presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. There is this connection between these these miraculous events and conversion. The apostles seem to recognize it, and they're saying, we want that to continue to happen. That's their prayer in chapter 4, verse 29. Let that continue. Luke is very clear on connecting miracles to conversion. Now, let me make a few clear, hopefully make myself clear. I am not saying that miracles save anybody. So get this Make sure this is clear. Miracles do not save. They never have and they never will. The means by which a person is saved is by hearing the gospel. It is the gospel that saves. It is the message proclaimed. For whatever reasons, God didn't consult me on this, but God decided that it would be through the proclamation of the gospel that men and women would be converted. In fact, I'll bet you a lot of you know people who have experienced miracles. Maybe some of you have a a friend or a relative who is not a believer, but they are in the hospital. Nobody knew exactly what was wrong with them. One day, boom, it's done. It's over. Doctors are baffled going, we have no explanation for this. We do not know how you were yesterday terminal and today there is no sign of your illness. And that person is not a believer and they have not converted to Jesus Christ. The miracle happened, but it didn't save him. So I want to make clear that I understand completely that miracles do not save anybody. But I also want to make sure sure you understand that miracles are not of no value. They are not of zero value. In fact, I would say that that miracles can shatter the shell of disinterest, cynicism, skepticism and false religion. Miracles have the ability to shatter somebody being, oh, well, what is that? Just some other preacher on the corner standing around blabbering on about something. But let me tell you, when the dead are raised, that gets them attention. When somebody proclaims the power of Jesus Christ to heal another person from a terminal disease, and it happens, they might say, what, is these, what are those words that you are speaking So miracles can shatter the shell of disinterest. They can shatter the shell of cynicism. They can shatter the shell of false religion. And they can shatter the shell of skepticism. Luke and the apostles seem to understand this perfectly. Miracles in the book of Acts seem to have an apologetic function. What I mean by apologetic is that they defend the gospel to it. When we talk about apologetics, we're talking about defending the gospel. So somebody gets up and proclaims some new teaching, such as Peter saying, listen, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You can have forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Really? So another new religion. How is this different from any of the other religions that we hear being spoken of? And then they hear 
people speaking in different languages that they have never learned, all declaring the praises of God. This gets some attention. When Jesus walks up to a, uh, or I'm sorry, when Peter and John are walking by a man born lame and everybody knows that he was born lame, they've seen him out there. And he looks at the man and he says, well, I don't have any silver or gold. Here's what I have in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. Yeah, that tends to give some authority to the words that you're going to speak. And so Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And now I want to tell you about the Jesus that healed him. You can bet people are going to listen now to the gospel. And it is the gospel that saves. It is the reason 5,000 people came to the Lord on that day. It wasn't because a man was healed, but because the gospel was presented. But that he, but we cannot disconnect that healing. We cannot disconnect that from, from this work. And, and Luke isn't trying to. Sometimes people ask, should we desire to experience the same phenomenon? My answer is, yeah. I want to see people healed. If somebody comes and says, I have cancer, we're going to pray for them. Why are we going to pray for them, right? We're going to say, well, we're going to pray for you, but there's no hope of God doing anything. Just go through the motion. No, we're praying. We want to see diagnosis, free and clear, no spot, nothing. We want to see that. Somebody comes and says, man, I'm, I'm depressed and I can't shake my depression. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to pray that a miracle takes place. I want to see these things happen. I, I will say this. We can't manufacture that. And I think that's a problem. I think sometimes we try to manufacture it and make it happen. I believe God is sovereign in healing just as God is sovereign in salvation. I can't make you saved. I can't save you. I can share the gospel. That's, that's what I can do. But I can't save you. God is sovereign in salvation. I can't. And, and too often times we might try to manufacture some sort of salvation. We see that, um, gosh, the Second Great Awakening was a great uh, illustration of this. And especially in the preaching of Charles Finney, um, who's a heretic. But a lot of people came and listened to Charles Finney. Six months after Charles Finney left the town, the place was probably worse off. Even though thousands had come forward at the preaching of Charles Finney, he manufactured a lot of things, but not much fruit. He, he manufactured salvations, but not much happened. We can manufacture these things. We might be able to manufacture healings. There are churches who do it, and nobody's really healed. But I do believe that God, so we, we can't manufacture it, but I have no problem with believing and praying and desiring that God would do great things like that in our midst. Somebody comes in here and needs healing and we're going to pray for them. I pray that a miraculous event takes place and that they're actually healed. I just pray we would not manipulate the situation and try to make it something it's not. God is sovereign. And so the, the, the disciples... The apostles here seem to understand this connection between conversion and miracles. But I want to do something else with this passage of text. I want us to take a look at how we teach here that the Bible is, is a single story. It is one big story. And that we need to understand these small events like the book of, like the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. We need to understand how does that passage of text fit into the overall story of the Bible. Because if we just pull it out and yank it out and say, oh, look at this, we can end up, I think, perhaps with a distorted view. We want to see how does it fit, how does this passage of text fit into the overall theme of Scripture. And one of the ways we're going to do it is see how um, authors use their words. 
And I want to look especially at this idea of signs and wonders because it's very interesting that Luke uses very similar language as Moses used in the book of Deuteronomy. And I, and I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 19, and a few other chapters. And perhaps from there we can see a, a bigger view of what God is doing in his, in his work, what God is doing in redemptive history through the use of signs and wonders. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 19, goes like this. He's talking about the, uh, the deliverance of the people out of Egypt, um, out of bondage and out of slavery. And he says this, verse 19, The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid. Notice that it is through signs and wonders that God brought you out of Egypt. Chapter 11. Verse 3 goes like this. His signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all the land that he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them, and how they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. In other words, God delivered you out of Egypt by signs and by wonders, like the parting of the Red Sea. And then you crossed over on dry land. And then when Egypt and his uh, Pharaoh and his armies came, the Red Seas came back upon them. God delivered you by his mighty hand, by signs and by wonders. And then in 26, verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 8. Again, Moses is looking back and reminding the people of how God delivered them. Deuteronomy 26, 8 says this. And... And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terrors and with signs and wonders. How did he deliver us out of Egypt? How did he deliver us out of bondage? With great deeds and with signs and with wonders. Then in 29.2, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants of the land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. And one last verse, 34.11. As Moses is, as the book of Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible are coming to a close. And there is not arisen, they're talking about Moses, and there has not arisen a prophet since, prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land, for all the mighty power, all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I bring those passages up because here's what's going on in those passages. God delivered his people out of bondage, out of slavery, and brought them into a covenant relationship with him. How did he do that? How did he deliver them out of uh, the house of slavery? How did he deliver, deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh? He did it by, the signs of, by signs and wonders. And for what purpose? To bring them into a covenant relationship with him. So get the flow of the passage. Get the flow of where I think biblical history is going. That God delivers people out of bondage by signs and wonders and he brings them into a covenant relationship with him. I think there's a danger when we're reading in the book of Acts. I think there is a danger of separating the so-called natural from the supernatural. These are, um, I think these are 
categories that Luke does not have. Luke doesn't have, well, the preaching of the gospel is natural and the healing of a lame man is supernatural. I don't think Luke gives us those categories. Here's what I think is going on. Luke's point is that the whole mission of God is supernatural. Everything that God is doing in the book of Acts is a miracle. It's all a miracle. Miracles are part and parcel of the entire witness of God. So whether a man is being healed of being lame from the from it for his from his birth, whether Paul is surviving a snake bite, whether there is Peter knowing the divine secrets of a person's heart, whether it is the casting out of demons, whether it is the bold preaching of the gospel with the resultant multitudes coming to salvation, God is working miraculously. I don't think we can miss that point. Luke doesn't say, well, this is natural and this is supernatural. Luke is saying it's all miracle. Everything that God is doing, whether, folks, we're in the fifth chapter of, of Acts. I would say, I'm just going to guesstimate. This is a rough estimate. You can correct me afterwards. Maybe 20,000 people have come to know Christ in what appears to be a relatively short period of time. Let's just say a year. And I think it's way less than a year, but let's just take it and give it a year since Pentecost. From Pentecost to Acts chapter 5, let's just say it's a year. I think it's much less, but I'm going to give it a year. 20,000 people? That's a revival. That is a miracle. Everything that is going to go on, everything that we're going to read in the book of Acts, Luke is saying this is all miracle. This is all supernatural. This is all God doing stuff that we can only sit back and go, this is awesome. This is amazing. Luke seems to understand himself to be living in an age when the promises and prophecies of God from the Old Testament are now being fulfilled. And miracles are one sign of that fulfillment. Luke is going, man, I'm living in a day and age when everything that God has been speaking about, that God spoke from the time of, of Adam to the time of right now, everything that God has spoken from Genesis to Malachi, Everything that God is, is being fulfilled in our midst, in the person of Jesus Christ. We're seeing it. This is an awesome day to be alive. I think we still live in the age of miracles. I mean, when a person comes to know Christ, it is a miracle. We pray that people would be saved. We're not praying for some natural event to happen. We're praying for the supernatural. Because salvation is a supernatural act. It doesn't happen because some flamboyant or well-spoken preacher preaches. Because the gospel is the power of God to save. And there might even be times where God does something like heal a lame man. So we want to see this connection that Luke seems to draw between conversion, and, and maybe this is bad language, but not nasty language or bad spirit, profanity, that's not what I'm saying. This may not be the right words. Between conversion and miracles, because conversion is a miracle. Luke seems to be saying it's all miracle. Everything God is doing is a miracle. Let me move along a little bit. You can chew on that when you go home. Because there is this rather challenging passage of text here and, and that I think has great application if we spend a little bit of time in un untangling it. And it says this in verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Well, that's just a convoluted and awkward sentence. If you ask me, and you didn't, but I'm preaching, so it is a convoluted and awkward sentence. Because first of all, we have to ask ourselves the question, who are the they that are gathered in Solomon's portico? 
Who are the rest? None of the rest dare to join them. Who are the rest that don't dare to join the they that are in Solomon's portico? And yet at the same time, there's a group of people who hold the they in high esteem. So perhaps we need to first of all figure out who are the they that are gathered together. And I would hold that the they there are the apostles. The rest that do not want to, who do not dare join them are believers who are unwilling to join the apostles in the temple and there's good reason they don't want to join the, the apostles in the temple because the last time the, the apostles were in the temple, the last time the apostles were in Solomon's portico, they got arrested. To associate ourselves with those people means we very likely will end up in jail. So the apostles get arrested at Solomon from preaching in Solomon's portico. They get let out. They go right back to Solomon's portico and keep preaching the gospel. And some are saying, well, I like what you have to say. I just don't know if I'm going to be available when the temple guards come and get you. But the rest, I think these would be unbelievers, more specifically Jews, held them in high esteem. And this is in contrast to the religious leaders. The religious leaders did not hold the, Jew, the apostles in high esteem. But people are saying, listen, these guys are doing amazing things. So let me, un- now that I said all that, let me see if I can summarize and put it all together because I probably just confused you. Here's my summary. Despite threats of imprisonment, the apostles boldly proclaimed the word of God, demonstrate God's power through healing the sick in the temple precincts. In other words, the gospel is proclaimed Miracles are being done by God. Some people are timid, but the apostles are undeterred by threats. And others, other people hold the apostles in high regard. So here's the, the bottom line. The apostles know good and well that they're gonna, they can easily get arrested for proclaiming the gospel in the temple. It's already been proven. And so what do they do? They go right back to the temple precincts where they got arrested a few days earlier and continue to proclaim the gospel. And they are undeterred. If you're not going to join with us, if you're afraid of associating with us, be, that's fine. Be afraid of associating with us, but it will not hinder us one bit from proclaiming the gospel where it's dangerous to proclaim the gospel. Where a risk of our freedom is a reality. We may be put in jail. We know we may be put in jail for doing this because we were just put in jail for doing this. And as it turns out, Next week, we'll see, they get put in jail for doing the very thing that they are doing. Can you, can you see why some people would say, well, I don't know how close I'm going to get to them. Now, I might hang out with them at their house, but I know what happens in Saul. I know what happens in the temple. If they're preaching and doing miracles in the temple, I know what happens. They're in the enemy's turf. They're on the enemy's home ground, and the Jewish leaders will kick them out and not just kick them out, but will arrest them. And I got a job. I got a family to take care of. I'm not quite sure I want to be that close. But none of this seems to hinder the apostles. The result is that the apostles are held in high regard by some people. So there's this dichotomy. Some people say, oh, you guys are, you know, you're disrupting things. The religious leaders are saying you're disrupting uh, what's going on in the temple. But the people seem to say, well, I, that's what our leaders say, but I kind of like what you have to say. Keep preaching. I would pray then that we are the type of people who are undeterred by perceived threats or real threats to proclamation of the gospel. That we, I think as we untangle that, the, the value of untangling it is we see the boldness of the proclaiming the gospel and we can say to ourselves, can I be bold and preach the gospel wherever?
Will I be bold and preach the gospel at my work, to my family, at a holiday meal, to my neighbor? Will I be bold and preach the gospel where it may be dangerous? Or will I be timid and say, well, I don't know about that? I'm going to pray that we're bold. This is miracle. Remember, this is a miracle. These guys just got arrested and beaten up. They go right back to the exact same place. Luke doesn't seem to think that this is non-miraculous. This is totally against human nature. In fact, next week we're going to see all of the apostles get arrested. They all get thrown in jail. Not just John and Jane, I'm sorry, not just Peter and John, but all of them get arrested and thrown in jail. And God has a solution. He comes and breaks them out. And guess where they go? Right back to the temple and keep proclaiming the gospel of God. And some people are saying, I don't know, man, every time you go, you get arrested. And they say, yeah, okay. And you got beat up. And they said, yeah, we consider that a privilege. I think Luke is saying, this is miracle. This is supernatural because I don't know about you. For me to do that would be a supernatural act of God to get me, after having been thrown in jail and beaten up, to go back to the exact same place and do the exact same thing. And the result is many people are being saved. This is an awesome passage of text. And then we note this, my last of my three points. Verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Whatever this is, we don't know the number, but it's multitudes, and it's men and women. And it says more than ever. So, well, on the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000. And then with the lame man, there was 5,000. Then we see a, a, a whole bunch of others. And so Luke is saying, yeah, more than that, more than ever, men and women are coming to the bold proclamation and the attendant um, outward miracles and outward signs and wonders are delivering people out of bondage and bringing them into a covenant relationship with the Lord. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. And Luke is now recording it. And I want you to note this. Note to what they are added. They are added to the Lord. And that just jumped out at me. They are not necessarily added to the church. So I think they are added to the church. But that's not their primary. That's not what they get joined to. They, get united, they are united to Christ. I think that's a great way to describe salvation. Added to the Lord. Maybe that could be terminology. Yeah, instead of saying somebody came, somebody came to salvation. Somebody got added to the Lord. Because by saying that, there is a very important theological truth. Or there is a very important truth. Because conversion is not just a superficial event that occurs in a person's life. It is not just walking down an aisle and saying a prayer. Or it is not just getting into a bunch of water and getting dunked. It is, there is a supernatural event that occurs at conversion. And that is a person is added to the Lord. The idea being that a person now is united to Christ. Conversion is a person being united to the person of Jesus Christ. And I was trying to think of a good illustration for this. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I couldn't come up with a good illustration. And then, what do you know? The Bible might give us the best illustration. So, this is a passive text that you're probably familiar with. But it is one that I think describes being united with Christ. In the book of Ephesians, I would encourage you one day, when you don't have anything to do, because, I don't know, maybe you might have a gap of time where you can just, you're wondering what to study in God's Word. Go through the first couple chapters of Ephesians and underline everywhere it says in him or in Christ. Just do that and then go back and make a list. You will go about rejoicing the rest of the week. I'm not joking. And that's not hyperbola. That's not exaggeration. That is, you will go about. You will see what happens when we come and 
through union with Christ. These people were added to the Lord. Let's look at what happens to them. It says, in Him, in Him, in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. These people were added to the Lord. These people were united with Christ. These people were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These people chosen in Him to be holy and blameless. In Him, we are predestined to adoption as children of God with him in him we have been redeemed through his blood forgiven of sins in him we have an inheritance and in him we are sealed with the holy spirit until the day of our redemption this is what happened this is all miracle these people heard the gospel they probably saw some amazing things and they were converted that day they were placed in Christ and being placed in Christ they were granted every spiritual blessing in heavenly places they were made holy and blameless before God they were adopted as children of God they were redeemed by the blood of Christ they were forgiven of their sins they were granted the inheritance of God the Father and they were sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit That, my friends, is a miracle. I want you to note that all of this was being done by God through the hands of the apostles. Don't miss this. This was not being done by the apostles. It was being done through the apostles. But it was, in fact, being done by God. This is just another, this added, being added to the Lord was just another great miracle. Again, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. 5,000 at the healing of the lame man. In 514, um, many were saved. Six, seven, even chapter six, verse seven, even priests are saved. And in chapter eight, verse four, many are saved and they rejoice. This is just going to go on through the book of Acts. It's all miracle. I don't think this has ceased. God is still doing amazing things. God, through the work of his people. I pray that we would see salvations. I pray that we would see God continue to do great and miraculous things. Remember, it is God's work somebody's converted, it's not because of anything that we do. If somebody's healed, it's not because we had said the right prayer and came up with the right formula. It is because God does amazing things. God does miracles. He delivers people out of bondage and he brings them into a covenant relationship with him. I'll conclude with this. One of the things we need to see is that the gospel continues to triumph. This whole series on the gospel of or the book of Acts is called the, the Triumph of the Gospel. And I wrestled with that title, but I think it's good because some people will say, well, Acts should really not be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. It does. But then people say, no, it should be called the Acts of God because we see God doing a lot of... And they say, no, it should be the Acts of Jesus Christ because we see Jesus Christ. And then some people are really good. They're like, no, it should be the Acts of the Triune God. And we get all convoluted, and and so I settle on triumph of the gospel because the triune God is bringing about his purposes and his plans, fulfilling exactly what he planned to do. And there is external threat, there is internal threat. Whatever threat faces, opposes God's work, God's will triumphs over all of that. That has not stopped because the book of Acts continues, and the gospel continues to triumph, and it continues to triumph through people who are saying, you know what, I'm going to do something that is just, it's going to be miraculous if I'm going to get up and tell my neighbor the gospel. It'll take a miracle of God. And God works that miracle through that person and they share the gospel with their friends and their neighbors. Through all of this, God is preserving his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Look at all the threats coming against this little tiny church so early on. It's weak. I mean, They don't know much. 
The apostles know quite a lot. People who are being converted don't know a whole lot. Can you imagine 12 people trying to disciple 3,000 on that first day of the day of Pentecost? How do you disciple 3,000? How do 12 people disciple 3,000 people and bring them to maturity? Man, you talk about a task. Through all of this, God is preserving his church. The gates of hell are not prevailing. They will not prevail. And they still don't prevail against God's church. The gospel continues to go out by the power of God. And it's all one big miracle. And the gospel triumphs. That is the miracle. It continues to do so to this day. We are in awe of all that is doing, uh, all that God is doing. I pray that we would lift our eyes and see God as perhaps much larger, much bigger, than, um, than we did when we walked in, that God is doing great and miraculous things and his church will triumph, his gospel will triumph and his church will, will be saved. Father, we're so grateful for